So, after three and a half years, it's finally happened as Tom Sykes runs into Jonathan Ray. Why is everyone looking at me? Quick, roll the titles. Let's go! Welcome everyone to episode 64 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on the Czech round of the World Superbike Championship as the series returned to Brunel and it returned with a bang as more history was made uh, in the World Superbike Championship as Jonathan Ray broke Carl Fogarty's all-time World Superbike record uh, before friendships, if they were ready, um, was certainly damaged in race two as Jonathan Ray and his teammate Tom Sykes came to blows in the second race of the weekend. Not that Rebecca James or Alex Lowe's complaining um, as the Briton took his first victory as a World Superbike rider. And Yamaha's third in four races. We'll talk about all of the incidents in action from Bruno, including all the fallout from Kawasaki and Yamaha. We'll also talk about another thriller in World Supersport as Jules Clausel proved once again how he's the best defensive rider in the world today. Uh, holding off Sandra Cortese for yet another Supersport win. Uh, we'll talk about Supersport 300 as the young Indonesian Galang Hendra took his first win of the year and the first on a Yamaha, um, while Anna Carrasco retained her championship lead. Uh, and we'll look ahead to this weekend as British Superbikes returns at Snetterton uh, MotoGP heads to Catalonia with more than a little bit of news to tell you uh, regarding silly season in the build-up uh, to that. Um, Rebecca James, by the way, for those that are wondering, you were thinking that if there was any show, she was a nailed uncertainty, to be honest, this one. She is on holiday. Um, but suffice to say, she's rather excited um, about what happened last weekend. Always keeping his emotions completely under control, though, unless Cristiano Ronaldo's pinging a free kick in in the last minute for Portugal. It's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. What just happened? Um... <laughs> yeah, we're recording this an hour late, listeners. Reason, Portugal 3, Spain 3. That's the reason. Uh... Yeah, yeah, a, a, a pretty good game of football. Um, uh, forgive us on that one for my for my uh, my um, emotional uh, distraughtness. There, it's one of the best international games I've seen in a long, long time. But uh, yeah, I, I'm here as well. You, you know, I'm always here. Uh, sadly, we can't get Rebecca James on every week, um, or any week for that matter. Bless her. But uh, I'm here indeed, and uh, yeah, I, I, another. Kind of balmy action of, of World Superbikes, really. It's been like a lot of crazy stuff happened in this, this weekend. In race one, wasn't have had a bit of drama, which we'll get to very shortly. But uh, yeah, another crazy weekend and a lot to get through. So uh, yeah, welcome back, everybody. Yeah, hell of a lot to get through. Uh, right, let's first of all tell you about the various places you can get in touch with us if you so wish. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, if you want to like us on there. If you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, at Motorsport underscore 101 is the place to go if you want to follow us personally at lewis 23 and at harrison 101 hd um if you want to go to our youtube channel and uh, see all of our podcast highlights dre brief sandy d day of classics 3 which uh, is still up there if you missed any of it uh, from a few weeks ago youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 um if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and yourself for early access to both our weekly shows patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 um, is the place to go. $5 backing earns you early access to both of our weekly podcasts. $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server uh, and the opportunity to listen to these podcasts live as they happen. Which, Dre, two new backers have done this very week. Yes, indeed. Jason Poland upped his pledge as well, so shout out to him. I'm just keeping up. With this. I, I, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm actually starting to struggle to keep up 
with all, with all the emails. Well, so Jason Polden up his pledge to ten dollars. Thanks a lot to him. He's now in the Discord server. Praise to Shuckle. Praise to Shuckle. Plays mm. B. Um, and James Galantis as well, who after months of hoarding his his brilliant mailbag questions, has actually backed us as well. So thanks a lot to you guys uh, for backing us at the ten dollar level. Much much appreciated. Um, it's it's it, it's it's been a it's been a very generous time out there. So again, as as always, thank you so much for your continued support. It doesn't it does not go unnoticed. Trust me. Um, it's, and, it's ridiculous. And via your support, two brand new uh, Motorsport One One podcasts are now live as we speak to you here uh, on Bike Live. Two went live over the weekend. Um, starting on Friday, episode one four four, celebrating um, a certain German's half century of Formula One victories. Um, Sebastian Vettel taking his 50th in Canada. And episode 145, looking ahead to the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which by the time you're listening to this will have either just started or just happened. Um, we don't yeah. know yet which. Um, but either way, Dre, um, two, two very good podcasts by all accounts. And um, as I say, the first one was really down to trying to make a lot out of very little in Montreal. And the second one, well, quite simply previewing the biggest race in the world. Yeah, according to Fernando, anyway. Again, depends depends what time of the week it is. Um, but uh, yeah, episode one forty four was Vettel's half century about the, the Canadian Grand Prix. Sadly, not the uh, bands eyeballs to the wall fest that people were hoping for. But uh, yeah, Sebastian becoming just the fourth member of the fifty win club in F one um, in in dominant fashion. You have to say um, the way the way that race weekend panned out, which. Wasn't which was actually a bit of a surprise from where I was sitting. Anyway, I did not think Sebastian would, would would do that over the course of the weekend. I have to say, but uh, we'll we'll try and piece together what we could of what was a actually fairly quiet Canadian Grand Prix as well as um, IndyCar's DXC 600 in Texas. Again, sadly, not the spectacular Texas finish we were all hoping for, but uh, an absolutely dominant display from Scott Dixon, who's now all like, outright third on the all-time IndyCar wins list with his with his. 43rd career victory and a very important one which now puts him back in the lead of the championship as well ahead of Simon Pagano who was definitely due a good result after bucket loads of bad luck his first top five result of the season believe it or not um, from the former champion in second and Alex Rossi in third me being happy because James Hinchcliffe now he's actually got an over engineer that knows what they're doing was back up to fourth place as well uh, so that was very useful as well and episode 145 is the dream team and that is a preview for the Le Mans 24 hours as well as Formula E in Zurich um, we got through that one Lucas Degrassi winning the first sanctioned motorsport event in the, the country of Switzerland for 64 years and that was that was another classic Formula E shit show if you ask me um, lots of drive through penalties more on that if you listen to the race itself and of course Ryan King RJ and special guest Stephen Kilby from uh, Stady Sports Car um, joining joining the show as well um, for a massive 45 minute Le Mans preview uh, which will be up well but just before the race itself goes up so by the time you're listening to this show it's already happened but sounds listen to it anyway it was a really fun time so episodes 144 and 145 both up right now on all the places you can usually find us yeah absolutely and all the uh, information regarding all of that uh, can be found on our website motorsport101.com um, now before we get into uh, this week's show and our review of the World Superbag action last weekend at Bruneau. Um Unfortunately, we have to uh, bring you some very, very sad news. Now, those of you who didn't follow um, this news on Monday or don't perhaps follow the um, Spanish domestic series, the CEV, uh, may not be aware of this. Um, now, basically, on Sunday, there was an accident in the second race of the weekend in Catalonia 
um, of the Moto3 Junior World Championship, uh, where unfortunately the Spanish Moto3 rider Andreas Perez uh, passed away um, as a result of an accident in that second race. He was involved in a multiple rider accident uh, at Turn 5 uh, earlier in the race. He crashed and was collected by riders who were following him. Uh, and in, according to a statement by the Avintia Academy, who for which he was riding, Andres Perez was admitted to hospital with very, very serious brain damage, and soon afterwards he was diagnosed with brain death. Even though his heart continued to beat, and despite many efforts, the doctors could do nothing to save his life. Andreas could not win this race. It has been very tough hours for all the members of the Reale Avintia Academy team, who were with the family from the first moment in these complicated moments. We have lost a great rider, but above all, a great person, and we will miss him a lot. The team and all of its sponsors wish to send all of the support to Andreas's family in this very, very difficult moment. A promising young rider um, who was third last year in the European Talent Cup and was making his debut this year in the FIM Moto3 Junior World Championship. And we joined the uh, Avintia Academy team um, in sending its love and our love and best wishes to the family and friends of Andreas Perez, who tragically this week lost his life at the age of just 14. So this week on Bike Live, we are reviewing the Brunel round of the World Superbike Championship. And it was another round where history was made. We teed this up two weeks ago that history potentially would be made at Donington Park. And in the end, only one of the two pieces of history were made. That was Tom Sykes taking the all-time World Superbike Super Bowl record for himself. Um, and technically, we got another record in that Tom Sykes extended his record with his 45th career pole. Uh, on Saturday morning, every time he sets a pole. Now, of course, he'll be extending his own record. Now, the main record that we were focusing on going to the weekend was his teammate, Jonathan Ray, who was level with Carl Fogarty for 59 career victories in the World Superbike Championship. Um, and in the end, Ray, we kind of got what we were expecting to see, although he needed a little bit of patience, didn't he, in the end, to, uh, to get that record-breaking win, because this was the race that initially just we could not get started. Indeed, it, it was the third attempt um, that eventually became the final result in this one in the end. Uh, Michael Ruben Ronaldi uh, smashing into the air fence in the first uh, in the first getaway in the early periods. Damage of the air fence needed timeout to repair that, so they did. They obviously called a halt to the proceedings, and they got while the red flag was out to fix the air fence. So we, we tried again, and attempt number two. And one to catch Greg Haynes off guard, the, the, the lights stopped working. They flashed on and off very quickly. And uh, it, to be fair, it could have been a lot more disastrous. Luckily, the reactions of the guys at the back of the grid who had seen the, the, the flash and had already launched their bikes. Uh, luckily, no no one was hurt or anything like that. No, no collisions, frankly. That could, that could have been potentially disastrous um, on that one. But no. Um, they were able to get it going again on the third attempt. And uh, well, after that, it was another Jonathan Ray masterclass, really. I was watching um, on the Superbike Live timing app as well. And he was the only man, you know, in like, not only did he smash the lap record of a 59.5 um, on lap two, it was a qualifying lap, really, from Jonathan on that one. And after that, he was the only man in the, in the low two minutes pretty much the entire race. Um, and he, he won it comfortably in the end from Marco Melandri in second. Um, just, the race was won by the end of the second lap. It really was, and it, it was vintage Jonathan Ray. You you let you let him get a clean shot, or you even get a clean hole shot, and you give him time to 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 work his magic. You're not beating him. It's as simple as that. He's just that that combination is practically invincible. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very straightforward win for Jonathan in the end. Again, it was it was hardly a classic by any stretch, unfortunately. But you know, there is no answer to dominance when it's just that good. I'm afraid so. 
yeah, nothing more you can say besides another magnificent Jonathan Ray win. Number 60 Absolutely. for Jonathan. 60 wins. And once he for Jonathan Ray, he is now in basically all alone uh, at the front of the field in World Superbikes for all-time victory. 60 takes it one clear of Kyle Fogarty. Um, uh, and yeah, as I say, uh, Tom Sykes had beaten him to pole earlier in the in the weekend, earlier that morning, uh, on Saturday morning, and was immediately beaten off the line by Jonathan Ray at the start of what was the kind of aborted race one before the red flags came out. Ray was already starting to gap him and gap the field by this point in race one. He was already starting to pull away at the front of the field. So it looked like in race in the restarted race one that we got, perhaps there'll be a different attack. And Sykes actually got ahead of Ray uh, off the line this time. Um, with Jonathan Ray just completely just pulverized him into the first breaking zone at turn three and then wasn't seen again. Um, so the uh, the plan B that we saw from the rest of the field lasted all of three corners before Ray uh, resumed his dominance. And, um, and and as we say, it's his 60th win now. He's he's all on his own at the top of the World Superbike charts. And we were talking off-air, Ray, which was all of an hour and a quarter ago now, um, before yeah. we started recording this, that... Jonathan Ray, who, as we'll tell you later on, has signed a new deal with Kawasaki. We'll talk about it in more uh, more extended time later on. But two more years with Jonathan Ray at Kawasaki at the end of this year, which means that essentially this record that he has at the moment, we could be talking about a rider upwards of 80 World Superbike wins by the time his next contract's up. Yeah, this is when we're, we're in the middle of year four for Jonathan Ray at Kawasaki, and this is his 45th win for Kawasaki since he joined that team at the start of 2015. Um, the way we I worked it out, it looks like he's on a, a he's on pace for about 12 wins a season on average. He's got he's had six this season so far. Um, he had 14 in 2015 and nine in 2016. He had an unbelievable 16 last season. Um, and he, he's even he's in the more competitive field. He still had another six this year already and has bound to be more knowing Jonathan's abilities, um, on the machine and the way, the way the season's played out. So yeah, this is his 45th win for Kawasaki. And if he's going at the rate of 12 a year, um, <laughs> Well, we we worked out but he could be he's on pace for ninety wins by the time he gets to the end of the decade at the at the end of twenty twenty. He could be he's on he's on path for ninety victories, which would be unbelievable to say the least. Um, that would put him way 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 out of reach compared to everyone else on the all time list. He was just going to gap the field at this point. It's uh, it's unbelievable, and the uh, the the pace. Which he's gathering these milestones is 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 still unbelievable. It's uh, it's incredible to watch. We've never seen anyone be this dominant in World Superbikes, and I don't. I'm not sure we're ever going to see anything quite like this again. Where just rider and biker in such perfect harmony, and it's such a you know, a, a a strong uh, a partnership. And you know, he, he's looked like a, like a god back home in Japan and in Kawasaki. Um, and he was treated like royalty at the Isle of Man last week. It's it's an unbelievable combination. He's, he's helping put World Superbikes back on the map just by sheer dominance alone. And yeah, like, like I'm not sure anything out there is going to stop him at the way the way he's going right now. No, and it's it, we are seeing the greatest rider in World Superbike history in front of our eyes, and he's now increasingly got the numbers to back this up. He's now got the all-time wins record by the end of this year, unless some incredible twist of fate comes into play with like an injury or something he's going to now have more world titles than anyone else by him this year this would be um he's you know it would be an incredible feat at the end of this year um as well and how many titles could he go on to achieve how many wins can he go on to get how many records would he have by the end of his career and what really strikes me 
and it struck me this weekend, Dre, I mean, it's kind of been shaping for a few rounds now, is that no matter what rules change they throw at Jonathan Ray, he seems to be a step ahead of it. I mean, I think back to last year and the, the reverse grid rule that we saw brought in was essentially brought in completely to stop Jonathan Ray from dominating. Um, yeah. Now, when we talk about race two, you could argue that the reverse grid rule kind of had its effect in race two this weekend because it stopped Johnny Ray right. from winning. Um, but you get the point. He overcame it last year and still took a number of doubles. In fact, he took doubles each of the first two rounds last year. Um, mm-hmm. So he was already ahead of the curve. And this year, the changes to the way the bikes were configured, the changes to the rev limits, the changes with concession parts, for instance, to other teams. Jonathan Ray has already got ahead of the curve in that respect as well. And you, you've got to think, Dre, in future years with Jonathan Ray now set at Kawasaki that World Superbikes, they, they've opened the bottle now. They're going to continue to try and find ways to close the field up and make everything tighter. But for the second consecutive year now, whatever rule changes they've made, which have been actively to try and stop Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki dominating, Jonathan Ray has overcome them by, well, by mid-season. Yeah, it's it, it doesn't work. It's as simple as, like, Kawasaki still have too many resources the and they still... Yeah, the best of that quickest. And then Jonathan is still a world-class bike rider, no matter which way you slice it. And Kawasaki is an incredible factory that knows how to win more superbike races. And, yeah, that's what they're doing. I mean, I know somebody's asked me the other day, like, uh, why isn't Kawasaki and MotoGP still? Because they can do this for for 10% of the cost. It's as simple as that. And when you've got that combination of the the, probably the best superbike rider we've ever seen, and a machine that is adaptable, flexible, and is able to win races with both its riders. I mean, I mean, let's not forget Tom Sykes is a world champion on that bike too, and has won many, many races and had many, many pole positions on that on that machine as well. It is truly a jack of all trades, truly an all rounder, and it, it, it knows how to win. And yeah, it's you're absolutely right. Like no matter what, like the sports opened Pandora's box. Like now. They have to. They have to. They have to go out of their way and have to try and stop Jonathan. It's as simple as that. If, if they if they weren't happy before with Jonathan winning, they've 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 now gotten to a point where they've got to now try and find a way to because he's just too good. The whole sport is now trying to find a way to bring this man down, which says a lot about his quality. They opened Pandora's box by having a reverse grid rule. They've now added concessions and rev limits. I'm not. I'm not sure how much further they can go on this one. Mm. Um, without it being. Yeah, without it becoming like an ethical question as to like, well, how much is is too much? Like, how like are you really trying to mix it up that much now? Where you're just gonna have the whole fields out of the back? Or like anyone that's good is gonna have to fight swim against the tide? Is that it? But yeah, it it doesn't matter. Jonathan's found a way to win again, and he's he, like despite the the ridiculous concessions around him, and it's you know it's gonna be down to a lot of find another way to do. It. it it just looks like they, no one's got an answer for him at the moment. It's just how it's going to be. And they, they discussed on the commentary, Greg Haynes and James Hayden on, on Sunday, uh, or Saturday and Sunday, about Sykes' role in all this and how integral he was to the development of the Kawasaki ZX-10R as we see it today. And indeed of that team, because he was there um, from way back in 20, 2011. He joined the Kawasaki team, took the team's first win that season at the Nürburgring, took its first title in 2013 uh, and they mentioned how difficult it must have been for Tom Sykes to essentially see his team become Johnny's team and it, basically he had his world taken uh, from underneath him and how that must have affected him which brings us nicely on to race two mm-hmm. where where uh, the Kawasaki's were on the third row of the grid Jonathan Ray of course had once he started nine. Tom Sykes had finished third in race one behind the Ducati of Marco Blanchi so he started seventh 
Um, Sykes got the better starting race too, but by three quarters of the way around the first lap, Sykes was in sixth and Johnny Ray was still in seventh. Um, and we saw the first of two collisions between the two Kawasaki riders. Now, the first one was largely unseen by the cameras. All we saw was the two bikes going to a corner fairly close to each other, come out of it mm -hmm. a long way apart, with Sykes sort of looking behind him and waving his arm about. Um, that's literally all we know about it. Um, yeah. Now, what we saw a couple of laps later, we still don't know the whole facts because there was no conclusive camera angle that showed us the whole incident from start to finish. We only saw... No. We, we were basically piecing together what we saw. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially the facts are these Jonathan Ray goes up the inside of Tom Sykes into what I think is turn 12 at Bruno um, yeah. the right hander, the penultimate S's um, which essentially leads you onto the straight approaching the final S's to complete the lap Ray goes up the inside and runs wide Sykes then gets the cut back, goes back up the inside and as he does so he collides with Jonathan Ray who is still on his left and Ray is out of the race his first retirement of the season uh, and his first non-score of the season. Um, now, as you'd expect, and in many ways, well, two could do with a bit of this, um, social media erupted um, once this happened. Um, and as I say, well, two could do with a bit of uh, social media commentary on its races to um, you know get a bit of conversation going, and it certainly got it. Um, essentially, with a lot of people dumping on Tom Sykes from a great height. Um, now, from what we've seen, Dre... Um, it's very, very difficult to kind of get the full picture of what happened. But Race Direction called it a racing incident. And that was my initial view of it when I saw it on Sunday. Um, the more and more I look at it, the more it appears sort of 60-40 Sykes, if we're apportioning blame. But I have to say, putting all rider allegiances and bias aside, I'm struggling to apportion any more of a blame to Sykes than that. 60-40 is about as far as I'm prepared to go. Of course, it's about as far as you're prepared to go. Um, no, <laughs> let, let impartial commentator Andre Harrison take from here. Um, no, to be fair, Lewis is pretty much on the money. Um, for for me, at least, I think sixty forty slice is about right. Um, as as Lewis mentioned, there was no clear cut angle on what happened. Again, it was almost like CSI Bruno, where we had to piece together what had gone on from various different angles. Yeah, the one camera that matters was following the race leaders. Indeed, it was it was following the hard camera was following Alex Lowe's um, and the leading group, but um, from what I could see, and my first instinct was it looked like a little bit naughty from Tom Sykes, and that was about as far as I was prepared to go on that. Um, Jonathan Ray in race two scenarios often dive bombs the shit out of everybody, and nine times out of ten he gets away with it because he's just that good, um, which again is understandable. Like that's just how it's going to be. Um, it is what it is where that, that's concerned. Like that's just, that's good hard racing. No one's ever brought it up as a complaint. He's not dirty. Jonathan's not got that sort of reputation behind him. Um, that's just that's just the sort of guy he is. He, he does that because it works. Um, this one didn't so much work, and I think a lot of that was down to Kawasaki not being able to handle the hotter conditions because race two was a lot hotter than race one. Um, Jonathan tries his, his usual lunge going to go wide for the second half of the S. Tom Sykes knows that. Sykes is 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 taking quite a wide exit. Um, and I said to, to Lewis before he went on the air, I said that I think I have a, you know, giving Sykes um, a big benefit of the doubt where he didn't see where Jonathan was or he knew exactly where Jonathan was about the situation. I think it's the latter, so to speak. And 
and, but I also would I would also like to mention on the record that this is exactly what both these riders do. This is normal for their reputations. Sykes and Ray have always raced each other hard, um, but they've always raced each other fairly. I've not heard any complaints about between the pair of them regarding their conduct on track before today. Um, and I think both riders could have easily backed down in their, in their particular scenario. Yeah, this was, the, this was the key point take... I made um, before we started the show. And I, I, I likened it to the incident that, for any Formula 1 fans that listen to this show, I likened it to Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in Bahrain this year, um, mm. where it was an incident where if you wanted to, you could construct an argument that either rider was at fault and that either rider could have avoided it. Um, but yeah. neither one, neither was prepared to give in. You know, if you were if you are in the Tom Sykes camp, you will say, "Well, Jonathan Ray's behind; he's on the outside. He could have easily just backed off because he's lost the position." If you're in the Jonathan mm-hmm. Ray camp, you can easily turn around and say, "Well, Sykes should have given him more room and not run into it." Um, and that's essentially what it boils down to. It's it's essentially it boils down to an instance where both riders could have backed off and avoided an incident if they wanted to, but neither wanted to give in to the other because they're world champions, because they're fierce competitors, they've got strong egos. Um, and therefore are not going to want to be seen to be receptive and you know, backing off to the other, which is understandable. Right. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, um, Tom Sykes um, could have avoided that incident. Tom Sykes absolutely knew where Jonathan Ray was because he'd just overtaken him um, and gone wide onto the left. Um, and you know, one thing that, that has to, one point has to be made is that Tom Sykes hasn't gone all the way out to the curb here. He there is still a, a, a good chunk of distance out on the left for Jonathan Ray to go into. Um, so this isn't a simple case of Sykes running Ray off. Um, no, but but without question, he could have given him more room. Um, and yeah, a, a lot of people did say after this incident that you know this isn't the way to ride against your teammate. Um, and to that, I say. Have any of you been watching these two while they've been teammates? Right, this, uh, this you know, is not new. They've they've never been given. They've always been racing each other hard, but you know, just about fair. Um, and you know, just go back to Donington two weeks ago, where they were dive bombing each other on the first lap of race one, um, right. while they were fighting for the victory. Go back to Thailand a couple of years ago. Go back to Donington in their first year together. Um, and it, it hits on another point that I, I, I kind of made before we started, and, I, and I'm being slightly facetious when I say this, in that at least someone didn't just give Jonathan Ray a clear run to win race two this time. Of course, by that, I'm not saying someone should take him off, um, but it was almost a case of Jonathan Ray was in his usual race two mode, which works so often of, I'm just going to be aggressive and try and take every position at every available opportunity, and Tom Sykes said, not today, Sunbeam. Um, and basically went back up the inside of him and said, Yo, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna pass me that easily at my expense." And um, in many ways, Dre. And again, I'm not saying that a rider should take Jonathan Ray off, but that's the only method I have seen in recent years of beating Jonathan Ray because Sykes did it at, at Thailand two years ago. If you allow Jonathan Ray to get into his rhythm and do his own race as he did in race one, he's quicker than everyone else. He'll go away and win with plenty to spare. The only way, as far as I can see it, that you can truly disrupt Jonathan Ray and beat him is by essentially roughing him up and disrupting him. Which, as I said, Jonathan Ray uh, had done to him in Thailand two years ago when Sykes gave him some pretty brutal chops um, in that race. Um, And whilst, of course, I'm not saying someone should make contact with him and knock him off, but as far as I can see, it's the only tactic of beating Jonathan Ray that I think works. 
Yeah, and let's be real here. We're not talking about a, a, a large sample size here yeah. with Jonathan Wright in the last few years in World Superbikes. I'm not even sure if that theory really holds all that much yeah. weight to well, it. I think but, it is. But it's, you're it's, right. It's the Rossi, it's the Bayless. It's when he overtakes you, you've got to overtake him back immediately or you're toast. Yes, it's it's that argument. It's the that's the best way of defending a pass. It's it's immediately counter attacking. Chaz Davis tried that at Imola uh, just a, just a month ago, and um, yeah, again, as you said, we're not talking about a large sample size here. I mean, how many times has Jonathan really not been a contender for a race victory in in his Kawasaki time? Not very often at all. Probably less than half a dozen times in the last four years, but. You're right. I think in the sense of yeah, like the your best chance is to rough him up a bit. He's not he's not as strong in a dogfight. And um the problem is that his pace is often three temps quicker than anybody else, even his own teammate on the same machine. So you've got to think outside of the box. You've got to rough him up a little bit. And that's what Tom's likes did in Thailand a couple of years ago, where it was basically block passes for days. Um this is not a new thing. That it is Tom's method of trying to deal with him. Normally, Tom just hasn't got either the stones or the or the pace to do it. This time he did, because again, I mentioned Kawasaki seemed to be struggling out there in race two. They didn't have the usual zip. Jonathan didn't just plow through the field like he normally does in a race two scenario. And it showed. So, yeah, I think there is certainly some credence to that, where, of course, we don't want anyone to, to ram into Jonathan Ray on purpose and initiate contact or anything like that. But... Obviously, it seems like being aggressive back with him is the only way to throw him off the scent. Um, so the way it's going right now, yeah, why wouldn't you think any other way on this one? Like, it seems to be the only thing that works against Jonathan. Hmm. And it's it's interesting to see what the dynamic is within that team. I mean, they've they've it's been no secret that they've never exactly been the best of friends, Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes. There's been a competitive respect, but they've never particularly, should we say, liked each other. Um, you know they've, they've 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 always taken any opportunity they can get in the press to have a little dig at the other, um, you know, such as Jonathan Ray's um, reference to how badly he wanted to win at Donington last year because it was Tom Sykes' uh, stronghold, and Tom Sykes winning at Aragon this year and saying that one was for Donington. Um, you know they they always take any opportunity they can get to have a dig at each other, um, mm-hmm. and as I say, you know, you're talking about such strong egos, such strong personalities, two world champions um, that. I don't think you can ever truly contain those two. You can, you know, I think this was always going to happen one day, um, because no matter how many times Jonathan Ray continues to beat Sykes, Sykes is never going to go into a race of the attitude of "I'm the number two. He's always going to, he's always going to go into a race with the attitude of "I, I still believe I'm the number one, and I'm going to race accordingly." And, and ultimately, this was the result of it all um, in race two. As Dre made the point earlier on, it was a, a race that Kawasaki were already struggling in due to the hotter temperatures. They were running 6th and 7th and were already a good 2-3 seconds behind race leader Alex Lowe's at this point of race 2. Um, so whether sorry, whether Sykes would have won the race had he not crashed shortly afterwards is, is a moot point. And whether Jonathan Ray would have won anyway, probably would have done. But he certainly found it much harder uh, than he had um, in race 1. Um, and it is the first time that neither... Factory Kawasaki has scored points in a race since the last time their two bikes ran into each other, which was that race in Sepang where Baz knocked Sykes off, um, which was, what, four years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's been a long time since Kawasaki have had this problem um, because this this combination has been so successful for them. For them. And as I say, Dre, it, it's interesting to see now what kind of dynamic there is between two riders within the team. As I say, they were never particularly the best of friends anyway. Um, and you kind of wonder whether the rumours of Sykes departing Kawasaki for, for instance, Yamaha, 
whether those rumours may accelerate now. Yeah, that's 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 kind of fair to suggest. Um, someone's been very complimentary. Smoke, um, rumour-wise, uh, talking about him potentially joining the Yamaha next season. I think I think there will be some movement in Worlds in the top flight next year. I think Marco Melandri's proven to be another Davide Giuliano, where he's not been enough of a teammate to to, 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 to Chaz and to Ducati to get them really up the field um, where they would have liked. Um, and then, like, it's like, that's the thing. I think with Jonathan Ray now staying for another two years as well, that was confirmed earlier this week, um, Tom Sykes is now expendable, really. Like, let's be frank here. We Especially know that Jonathan... Michael Van der Mark's an alternative. Yeah, if, if Van der Mark or Chaz Davis is an alternative, you know, who is also, you know, going to be a, quote, accidental number two, as I like to call it. Um, yeah, then I think... You know there is a chance that Tom could 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 go elsewhere. I think you know the the, the grounds are open to it. I mean, like Tom's not going to beat Jonathan sticking around on that team if he really does want to win a second world championship because he may not have that many prime years left in him as a rider anyway. He's got to go somewhere else, and why not to the team that's won three of the last four races, um, and a team that has genuinely made progress in the in light of these new field balancing rules. Let's let's be frank. That's that's how the field is playing out at the moment. So. Yeah, it's it, the the grounds are open for it now. Like there is certainly um, possibilities when it, when it comes to this now. So I, I'd, I'd keep half an eye on the situation for sure because I think uh, at the moment I think if Sykes wants another world title, he's going to have to look for it in another team. And with Kawasaki having Jonathan Ray on board, well, they hold all the aces already. Quite frankly, yeah, absolutely. Essentially, it's you know, you're, if you're going to stay at this team, you're essentially going to be that number two, which which Sykes doesn't want to be. I was absolutely, I was going to make that exact point. If, if Sykes truly believes he has another title in him, um, then it's going to have to be with another team. And it would be interesting if, say, Van der Mark does make the switch and Yamaha to Kawasaki. He's not exactly going to play a number two support role to Ray, is he? He's also going to go into that team with the attitude of, I'm here to beat the world champion and, and try and win the title for myself, um, which again would bring an interesting uh, dynamic. Um, as I say, Sykes later crashed out of race two to bring an end to another pretty mixed weekend, to be kind to him, because he got a podium in race one um, to finish third. Um, and indeed took another pole position, his third of the year now. And uh, I, I joked on the last show, the last show where we covered this championship, that he may soon be eyeing up 50 World Superbike poles. Well, he's now up to 45. Um, so who's to say by the end of this year, he might not be closing in on a half century of super poles. Um, if it is indeed his last season with Kawasaki. Now, in the absence of Jonathan Ray, we still had a race in race two. Um, but in his absence, we kind of looked ahead as to what the race two outcome was going to be. And before we talk about the winner himself, um, I want to bring up a point you just made there, Dre, about Marco Melandri, because you, you mentioned how he's kind of becoming another Davide Giuliano. He's flattered to deceive way too often with Ducati. Um, and perhaps he may be expendable at the end of the season. I have to agree with that because it has to be said, as soon as Jonathan Ray dropped out of race two, Dre, that race had Marco Melandri's name written all over it. And he blew it. Yeah, another... Like, Melandri had just gotten involved with the Yamaha fight up the front, and then two corners later, he completely goes gravel swimming, um, going up the hill towards turn three, just gets his braking all wrong, parks it in the gravel, loses 
about 30 seconds and next thing you know he's, he's on the fringes of the points and it was just it was it was a golden chance for another Melandry double like we had at Philip Island and that just kind of sums up Melandry in his time at Ducati so far is that he has flashes of brilliance so he, he had that double at Philip Island and he was fantastic that weekend he's won he won at Misano in race two last year it was the 100th Italian superbike victory and he has moments where he looks like he, he could be as good as anyone on the planet still, but sadly, almost like his GP career, they just don't happen frequently enough. No. It's where it's, it's 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 another Davide scenario where it's like Davide was a guy that could have won races in Worlds. He was very close on new, and again had moments where he looked like he belonged in the absolute elite of of, of World Superbikes. But then he had many other days where he just didn't perform and. This for me was another one of those days where, yeah, he was. He we made the best of the scenario in race one. That was the best he was going to get in second place. He comfortably beat everybody else on the day. That was a good twenty points for Marco and a good second place. This time round, has to be said. Way ahead of Chaz, which is what he needs to do. I mean, if if Chaz isn't going to perform, you need to be up the field there. I mean, we expect Chaz to lead the Ducati team. He has done for the last few years now. But if you're if he's having a bad day, you need second guy to step up and marco did in race one but he did not in race two and that was another needless mistake where he could have capitalized and really got up got up the field and this time around he just didn't and that was a another silly mistake and i, and I think that could be why jacati may look elsewhere next season because that's not good enough for what they're trying to achieve no i mean it, it, it's just as well for malandri at the moment that um chubby forrest's jets seem to have cooled in recent weeks haven't they in that he only he didn't, he didn't score a point at donington and he was 14th in race one at bruno and only eighth in the reverse grid of race two um uh, Michael Rubio and Aldi, incidentally, he got his career best finish of the weekend, uh, career best finish of the season last weekend by finishing sixth in that second race of the weekend. Um, so uh, Ducati will be monitoring his progress. But um, you know, if you're if you're a Scott Redding, for instance, in in MotoGP, um, I'd be having some conversations with Rubio Ducati and offering your services because yeah, Marco sure. Malandri's Marco Malandri's you know his CV is unquestionable, his his pedigree is unquestionable, but. It's one of those classic "What have you done for me lately?" arguments, and uh, Michael Malandri hasn't won since Phillip Island, and he's only had three podiums um, in the what twelve races we've had, uh, fourteen races we've had since then. Um, so yeah, Malandri clearly under pressure at the moment at Ducati, crashing out of what was the lead that he'd only just taken from Alex Lowe's, which meant that we had the two Yamahas clear at the front of the race and. A third victory in four races for the Yamaha team and a first World Superbike victory at long, long last Ray for Alex Lowe's, who must have been, despite having scored some pretty decent points at Donington, must have been in a pretty low spot, you know, mentally, mm. having seen his teammate take Yamaha's first two wins uh, for the team and, you know, beat him to that honour of being the first Yamaha winner with the new R1. Um, so it was important that Alex Lowe struck back the way he did. Um, Vandermark had beaten him in a straight fight for fourth in race one. Um, in the uh, Saturday race at Bruno, but Alex Lowe's, to his credit, um, standing up in that second race, and that was an important win, not just for Alex Lowe's season, but for his career, isn't it? Because having seen him on Vandermark do what he did in race two, and with Vandermark right on his tail um, in that second race, once it became clear it was a straight bite between the Amahars for victory, it was so crucial that Lowe's held, st- held strong there, wasn't it? Indeed, I, I remember after race two, they had uh, Pate Yamaha's team boss, um, um, you know, Matt Roberts did an interview with him 
after the race itself. And I, rem- I remember him talking about that very weekend at Donington and saying that, um, yeah, like Lowe's was ironically very low after that weekend. After obviously, you know, it's, it's not that he had a bad weekend, he had a pair of fourth places on, and then the other weekend, that's an excellent haul for, um, for the Yamaha team. But of course, seeing his, his teammate put off the double, um, you know, didn't didn't do wonders for his confidence um and yeah van der mark has you know stolen a lot of their headlines this season because he has been the better rider this year there's no getting around that however um this 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 was coming this was due um and i have to say as well alex lowe's is you know, he's worked so hard to get to this position i mean i sound i'm, I'm gonna sound very bexy for the next 30 mm-hmm. seconds listeners so bear with me here but by all accounts, he has worked very hard. He put up with an awful Yamaha for a long time. The Yamaha that was always playing catch up in the series, bad electronics, and just the bike that just wasn't really capable of, of winning. And he 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 was he was given another chance by the Crescent team with Yamaha. And I'm glad that Alex was you know, the first person, the first people he thanked was his team for standing by him for all these years because this 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 was six years in the making. Um, to, to get to this point to be where he's able to celebrate his world superbike start yeah i think i think there was a record as well for most win most races without first victory and uh actually no, i think cammy actually still holds that record now poor fella um get get right of a higher victory um but yes yeah, so like Lowe's had gone over 100 world superbike races since without a victory and like he's worked so hard and the talent has always been there for He's always shown it in bunches that he's capable of, of, of riding at the very highest level. And he was the spearhead of that Yamaha team for the, for the first couple of years. It was in existence with, you know, with Ginters as a teammate, begrudgingly. And obviously Van der Mark joining the year afterwards and you know, forming this, this really strong young team that they've got. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's a long time coming. It's well-deserved. Lowe's that brilliantly it was a brilliant management job michael vandermark tried everything to get past him and if anything michael overcooked his tires and just took the second place in the end um smart riding from michael for what it's worth so yeah yamaha's first one two since 2011 um in in the series so you know good for them on that one but yeah i mean as mentioned they they well-deserved first victory for Alex Lowe's. It's been a long time coming, um, but this was a reminder that he is a class rider and he, you know, he took advantage of the scenario and the, hand, and the cards he'd been dealt for the first time and turned it into a win. So I'm, I'm very happy for him and I'm glad the paddock was very happy to see him win as well because I, th- I think they know he's a proper after and there's not yeah, many of those. He's a rider that left. you, and you know, more, Rebecca James, of course, is the, uh, the most obvious example of it, but he is a rider that mm-hmm. you, you want to see do well. Um, because he he does wear his hat on his sleeve. He does work very very hard. Um, and you know one thing you can never hold against like Lowe's is he doesn't put the work in. Um, in many ways, like his brother Sam, um, they'll always give absolutely everything to try and you know try and deliver the ultimate results. But sometimes the things just don't go their way, either through lack of machinery or sometimes they they make mistakes. Um, but what was crucial for me was that he did beat Michael Vandermark in a straight fight when the win was on the line, and you know. When Melandri dropped out of the race, and obviously we were mindful that both Factory Kawasaki's were either out of the race or down the back in the case of Sykes um, after they'd crashed, um, I-, I watched the way that race was building up and I was fearful. I was thinking, Vandermark's going to do him. Like, Vandermark yeah. has got those first two wins. He's got he's on the crest of a wave. He's got that confidence. That monkey's off his back. The pressure is all on Alex. Uh, and Vandermark was just shadowing him. And I just, I just felt, I had that dreadful feeling that Vandermark is just going to pick him off towards the end of the race. And all of the credit in the world to Alex Lowe's for holding strong, for you know taking that pressure, resisting it, 
you know, not overcooking his tyres as his teammate did and eventually being the man there at the finish to, to convert it and take the 25 points and the emotion and the, the frustration, the anger, the pain, the tears, everything that's gone into Alex Lowe's World Superbike career all came out as he crossed the line um, because he'd finally achieved it. He'd finally got that victory that he'd been he'd been searching so hard for. And as I say, we, we said this about Michael Van der Mark and it could be a career-changing result for him to take that double. And mm. let's hope that this is the same for, for Alex Lowe's. I mean... It's not beyond the realms of possibility that Tom Sykes stays on at Kawasaki and perhaps they, they keep their team as was um, for the last few years, which if, if that does happen, I'd imagine Yamaha will do the same. They will retain both riders. But I think if Vandermark sure. does switch um, to Yamaha, um, for me, it would make absolutely no sense for Alex Lowe's to be dropped. He, you know, he does, he's now proven that he is a rider capable of, of converting that, that machine into wins when it's capable. And, and Yamaha deserve a lot, of, a lot of credit, Dre. I mean, we did we did ask the question, and you know, we asked the question after Donington, are Yamaha much more advanced than they were previously? Have they made genuine progress? And we did say, we're going to have to see a bit more evidence to back this up. And yes, circumstances played into their favour. The cards fell in their favour with the Kawasaki's crashing out. But you could only argue with the results in front of us. And you know, two weeks on from their first brace of wins with the new r1 they're taking another one yeah you can't argue with that i mean yeah they've won three out of their last four their first one two finish in seven years um you know both their riders scoring victories um which is always a good sign of a good team when both your riders are capable of winning on the same bike it's it's, it's a it's a sign of a well-balanced improving team and all of a sudden van der mark has got a legitimate chance at second in the championship after his sixth podium finish of the season, believe it or not, uh, alongside his, his, his pair He's of only victories. nine points behind Chas Davies. Indeed. And, and you know, Lowe's is, only, is there in sixth place. He's only three points off Melandry. So, that, like, no matter which way you, you you look at it, they are rubbing shoulders with the best the sport now has to, has to offer more frequently. Um, it's amazing that that was that win for Lowe's was only his second podium of the season. Um, especially when Van der Mark's had six, but it's no fluke anymore. They are now consistently in the top five and they're challenging for victories more frequently. Yes, this was a bit of an attrition level sort of race win for Yamaha and Yem because many of the key contenders, in fact, pretty much all of the major contenders did not have a say in that race at all, but you can only beat who they put in front of you. And in this case, there was no one put in front of the Yamahas in, in race two because because no one else had the pace to beat them um, on the day. I don't, I don't think Kawasaki would have gotten there either, even if it wasn't for Sykes' error and, and, and Jonathan Ray's unfortunate crash. So for me, at least from where, I'm free, from where I'm sitting, I think they totally deserved it. And yeah, I mean, they are they are winning races now. And the, the, no matter which way you slice it, it's a, it's a step better than where they were last year. So to a degree you can also make the case the rules are working because yamaha who we always said were going to be the team most likely to benefit from this are benefiting from this hmm. and, and they're making a, a legitimate claim now to having the second best package in the field behind the kawasaki now i know they were beaten on pure pace in race one by malandri uh, and may well have been beaten by malandri in race two um, had he not fallen off but they were so far ahead of Chaz Davies in that second race, and indeed they beat Chaz in the first race. And what do we say about his weekend, Dre? I mean, he still came out of it with a decent clutch of points um, at the end of it. Obviously, he was third in that second race by virtue of attrition, if nothing else. Um, but what what concerned me about Chaz Davies last weekend is that not only was he not on Ch Jonathan Ray's level, but he wasn't on the level below him. He was barely on the level of the Aprilia's. 
Um, he'd only just broken free from them at the end of that race. The Aprilias were, were giving, were keeping Chaz honest in race two. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He was not a threat for the Yamahas during that race. Um, the two guys that were the biggest threats behind him, in fact, the three guys that were the biggest threats behind him were Melandry, Sykes, and Jonathan Ray. None of them finished in relevant positions in the end. They were all behind him, and they all stayed behind him. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it is a weird one. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I find it, I find the whole thing sort of weird. It's, it's interesting to say the least. Um, but it's, it's not a good sign if you chat. It's not a good sign. Um, I don't know what's up with the package and yeah, it's, it's alarming. Um, because we expect Chaz to be, you know, the perennial you know, top contender yeah, he in the field. should be there to mop up in that second race. When, when yeah. you know, Melandri was out, the Kawasaki's were out, you'd think, if you'd been just glancing at World Superbikes from a distance for a couple of years, you'd think, well, that leaves Chaz Davis then. Um, but he uh, but he could only manage third in the end, um, and mm-hmm. a very distant third as well, behind the two uh, factory Kawasaki's. Um, as Dre said, he was barely on the level of the Aprilias um, in that second race, and he was beaten by them. Um, in the first race, well, Jazz Davies only eighth in that first race behind Lavity and Savadori, who were sixth and seventh respectively. Um, let's run you through the results then, um, as we saw them um, from last weekend. Bruno, Jonathan Ray, the history making 60th career race victory um, in race one of the weekend from Malandri and Tom Sykes, uh, who completed the podium. Michael Vandermark finishing in fourth position. Uh, in race one, which, if you like your trivia, meant that he was the seventh different rider in seven weekends this season to take race two pole um, by taking that fourth position. He had of Alex Lowe's in fifth, Eugene Laverty sixth, uh, Savadori seventh, as the Aprilias took their uh, one of their best combined results of the season so far. Chaz Davies eighth for Ruben Ducati, ahead of Leon Kami in ninth, and Toprak Razgatioglu in tenth position, ahead of Yoni Hernandez, who made Q2 for the first time this season, Leandro Bacardo twelfth. Roman Ramos, 13th. Chevy Forrest, only 14th. And Michael Ruben Rinaldi, who, of course, punctured the air fence and had to start the restart from the pit lane. Uh, he took the final point in 15th position. Race 2 went to Alex Lowe's, his first career win uh, from Vandermark. Yamaha's first 1-2 since Portimao Race 2, 2011, the final race of that season. Uh, Chas Davies, 3rd, ahead of Lamity and Samadori, who once again were line astern in 4th and 5th this time, with Rinaldi a career-best 6th. Leon Camilla, seventh this time, ahead of Forres. Toprak Razgatioglu, top Kawasaki rider for the second time in three races. Um, in ninth position, all this one load a little bit more to fortune than the previous one. Uh, Roman Ramos, tenth, ahead of Baz in eleventh on the BM. Jay Gagne, twelfth. PJ Jacobson getting points in thirteenth for Triple M. Yoni Hernandez, fourteenth. And Marco Melandri winning the battle of the, uh, well, the battle of the losers, if you like. Him and Sykes had a race-long battle at the back of the field for the final point. Melandri won it to take fifteenth position. Championship standings then um, at this stage. We have now passed the halfway stage in this World Superbike season um, with uh, 14 of the 26 races gone. Uh, It looks like this. Jonathan Ray with a comfortable uh, 65-point lead uh, over Chaz Davis, although, of course, it was 81 going into that second race of the weekend in his first DNF of the year. Um, Ray has 270 from Chaz Davis on 205. Vandermark is third on 196. Sykes is fourth on 179. Uh, Melandry fifth on 157. Alex Lowe's is just three behind Melandry in sixth on 154. Chavi Forres is seventh now, becoming a distant seventh on 134. Toprak is up to eighth on 91. Savadori ninth on 73. A point clear of Camille on 72, with Loris Baz level on points 
um, with the Honda Rider in the 11th position. The Manufacturers' Championship is led by Kawasaki. They are now 35 points clear of Ducati in second, who are in turn 40 points clear of Yamaha in third. A pretty now a clear fourth over Honda with BMW and Mendy Augusta just ahead of Suzuki, of course, only got those three points courtesy of the wildcard Bradley Ray at Donington Park. round of the World Superbike Championship, incidentally, uh, and this isn't the case for the classes we're about to talk about, because it's the American round at Laguna Seca, where only World Superbikes travels to, and that is next weekend. Uh, now, World Super Sport up next, and the continuing battle of the Yamahas up the front, and it's increasingly now becoming a two-horse race at the front of the World, Superbike Champ uh, World Super Sport Championship, should I say, uh, with Jules Clouzel and Sandro Cortese increasingly looking the class of the field, um, and they put on another brilliant battle up the front, Dre, and in the end, once again, it was the uh, the great French defender on two wheels um, to go with the great French defender on four wheels, Jean-Eric Verne of Formula E, uh, Jules Clouzel, um, who took his third win out of four, uh, and much like his previous two, he had to hang on by his fingernails to achieve it. Yes, this was a an, another classic case of the great wall of Clazelle coming into play again. Uh, another defensive masterclass, another uh, racer. He literally just did not give Sandro Cortese an inch. Um, whew, um, it was crazy to say the least. Um, it, it was a race where those two were the class they had distanced uh, their other rivals like De Rosa, who tried to keep up in the early going, but again, just faded a little bit by the end. Um, Mahias and Krimanaka weren't really in place. It was just a one-on-one -on -one fight in the end towards the end of the race between Cortese um, and, and Cazelle. And it, 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 got, it got physical towards the end of that one. Mm -hmm. The final lap, Cortese tries a, a, a switch back into turn four on the first of the S-Bends at Renault. Um, and they both end up standing up because of the uh, the contact that was made through turn four. Um, and somehow they did not take each other out. Somehow, you know, they did not, you know, they, they did not, didn't crash. They both rejoined the track safely in the end. And Clazelle was still out in front. And Clazelle was able to hold it to the line. Clazelle just did not have an answer for him on that one. And even the one time Clazelle did come up in front, Clazelle passed him right back because he was just the faster man into turn one. Clazelle just could. The thing is, the, the key of that race was Cortese could not outbreak Clazelle, and that mm. was what won it for Clazelle in the end because he was just a, he was just better on the breaking. That's how Dovi has won a lot of his dogfights against guys like Mark Marquez because there's no one can break later than him, and that's how Clazelle was able to win this one. Every time Cortese had a good run, Clazelle was just able to outbreak him and then sweep and take the race in line. It was it was a masterclass on 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 how not to how not to lose position and. Cazelle rode magnificently to hold off the threat. Because I think Cortese was genuinely the fastest guy. And it's just, it's that Cazelle has once again held him off to, to take his third banana four. And now uh, it's looking like a two-horse race for the championship. Mm, it is. They, they've uh, distanced themselves in a, in, a, in a sense. I mean, in terms of the points, it's still pretty close to in the top four in Supersport. But if you look at the way the, the wins have been handed out, Cazelle and Cortese between them have won each of the last five races between them. 
with Clozel winning three of them, Cortese winning two. Um, and you're right, Cortese absolutely had the best pace out there because he was on pole by six tenths of a second. Yeah, uh, it was on a Saturday uh, ahead of Kruminaka and Clozel, um, who completed the front row. But it just goes to show, I sense in a sense, doesn't it, with um, this class that gets sort of mockingly looked at as a bit of an R6 cop, as, as Greg told us when he joined us last time. But even within a class with many of the same bikes, you can still see different riding techniques and styles coming to play to, to, to sort of decide races between the different riders on those on those Yamahas. And, and this was an example of it, wasn't it? Where Cortese, who has the experience of Bruno, he's ridden around there in Grand Prix. Um, he's got podiums around there in Moto3 and Moto2. Um, and he doesn't have Moto2 podiums to his name, does he? He doesn't have many of those. Um, but he does have the one at Bruno. Um, for Clozel to still hold him off. And I have to say, if this is going to be the championship at the end of the season, buy me a ticket. Yeah, please. More of this. Um, that was that was a nerve-wracker. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, if, if this is form book for the rest of the season, I'm okay with, with Clozel and Cortese beating the crap out of each other <laughs> on several races to try and decide a champion. That would be great. Um, and as you say, it's... Um, in, in, to borrow a phrase from from boxing and MMA, um, styles make fights, and and this was the classic example of that. Cortese was the faster man. That pole was a, was two thirds of a second quicker than anyone else, but it was the style of Clazelle's rider that that made it interesting. As I said, he, he was able to outbreak Cortese, and his bike had more top end speed than, than Cortese. Remember, they're both on the same Yamaha at the end of the day, but. Clazelle's was better rigged for top speed and better rigged for braking and sweeping these racing lines and taking the wider line and taking the wider entry into corners. And that's what prevailed on this one because Cortese's bike was not set up that way and he wasn't able to beat Clazelle. He just didn't have the extra five yards of braking capability to be able to do it. And that's what that's what that's what balanced the field at the end of the day, and that's what made it interesting. And that is ultimately how Cazell ended up taking the win. Mm, of course, we're talking about two riders on Yamahas and a lot of the championship front runners of Yamahas. But as you've heard, if you've listened to our shows regularly, particularly our World Superbike and Super Sport Roundup shows, there is one noticeable exception, and that is Raffaele De Rosa, who finished third this weekend at Bruno. Third for the fourth race in succession, Dre. Um, now, as we mentioned, Cortese and Cluzel are quickly establishing themselves now as the class of the field. But if, I, if any other rider in the field has a genuine claim to be rider of the year within this class, De Rose has surely got a very compelling case. Yes, he absolutely has a shout. That MV, we all know. The Yamaha 600 Cup right now in World Super Sports, let's be frank. The top five, four, 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 five out of the top six in the championship are all on Yamaha's. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. It's it's a Yamaha R6 Cup right now, but yet Raffaele De Rosa is the only one on the bike that isn't a Yamaha to stay competitive. And this is this is the third race in a row now where he's gone out of his way on a bike that isn't a Yamaha and but remained competitive. He was he was keeping up with the leading group, you know, through the first two thirds of that race. Um, yeah, it's 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 seasoning. He's doing an um he's doing an unbelievable job on that MV Augusta. We know. They haven't got the resources of Yamaha. We know they haven't got the budget to compete with with, with with that juggernaut of a team. But yet, here he is. He's still finding ways to win and finding ways to get it done. And yeah, like, like I hope Rafael de Rosa wins a race between now and the end of the year. I hope there is a track out there that gives MV a little bit more because you can see it's not through lack of trying. Like they are really... They are, like he's really doing an exceptional job of what he's been given. He can do no more with that with that MV six hundred at the moment, and uh, 
yeah, he deserves all the plaudits for, for remaining competitive and you know being you know as his third consecutive podium result now. Fourth in a row. Um, uh, yeah, fourth a- in a row. Assen, yeah. Imola, Donington, and Bruno. He's been third in all of those races, and he might have been five because, of course, don't forget he blew up from a very good position at Aragon as well. Um, mm-hmm. when going very well. So De Rosa is having a superb season uh, on that MV. Uh, and really, his emergence as a real threat has had a couple of noticeable casualties because what's becoming an increasingly strange story during this 2018 Supersport World Championship is the former the world champion, Lucas Myas, who mm. took a win in a second from the first two races and had he not been crumanackered at the final corner in, in Thailand, he'd have won the first two. Um, but he hasn't been on the podium since. Um, and as a result, he's right. now 19 points of the championship lead. He's down to fourth in the championship overall. Um, and, I mean, he's still got five races to go, and he's still in a very good position in terms of, you know, he can still win this championship and still retain it uh, with five to go if he can rediscover his form. But at the moment, the way the graphs and the way the lines are going, Mahais is falling out of contention here. Needs more pink. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, the way it's going right now. Yeah, Mahais is going to drop out of contention soon if he doesn't, if his results don't pick up. It's very strange. I don't know if that Thailand car crash he had after the weekend has had more of an effect than, than Lucas is giving on, because he played it down a lot when he spoke about it in public. But I'm speculating here. I don't, I don't know what's going on. But it's, it is like, I don't know how much of it is down to the increased competition in the class or how much of it is you know, maybe is his team, Federico Caracazulo, who. You know, had a bad weekend this time around, but has been competitive again in, in races this season. It's it's concerning. I don't quite know how Lucas has not been able to pick up the form. He made a silly mistake in Imola. And in, in this race, he, again, he just didn't, he never looked like he was going to win. He, he just did not have the pace to stay with the lead in three. And he, he, he fell further and further back as the race would go on. So, yeah, I don't know what's causing these issues with Lucas, but there needs to be a solution found them quickly. Otherwise, he's not going to be retaining his title. No, no, he's not. And and what was what was bizarre um, as well as I was looking at the results, he set the fastest lap of the race. Um, did, did Lucas Myers, uh in that race? I mean, so there was clearly some pace there, um, but it was it was just weird. I mean, he said it. He said it on lap two. He said it right at the very start of the race, the first flying lap. But he just did not have the the pace to to maintain that. Um, and to stay with it, he finished 6.7 seconds off the race winner uh, in the end. And um, that was a that flatters him a bit. Because, of course, both Clozel and Cortese lost a bit of time on the final lap where they were trying not to knock each other off. Um, so, mm. yeah, my ass is, as you say, not only has he not won for five races, but he's not looked like winning um, for at least four of them. Um, you know, he probably would have won him already not um, messed up there. But it, it is strange how my ass has faded. And Krumanaka's a bit hot and cold, isn't he? But he's still in contention. I mean, he, when he's hot, he's when he's he's brilliant, as we saw in Aston, as we saw in Thailand. But exactly, um, he's also been you know out of the leading group in the last three races that we've seen. Um, but he's only 17 off the lead. We still have four riders within a race win of the outright lead. Uh, with Cortese on 122 points, Clozel on 120, Krumanaka on 105, and Mahias on 103. Um, but in this Yamaha R6 Cup of which we speak, I think we could possibly rule out one contender now, Dre. Uh, and that's Federico Caracasulo, who'd had this consistent start to the season where he'd had uh, three podiums in the first five races. But now after that sixth at Donington, his second crash of the season to go with the one that he had when he was battling with Stapleford at, at Assen. That's the kind of incident that when you're not winning and you're, all you've got to rely on is consistency, crashes like that are all the more costly. 
Yeah, exactly. 43 points now off the championship lead with five rounds to play. It's going to take a hell of an effort from Karakasuda to get back in the title race now. If he was winning races like Lazell was, I wouldn't rule him out yet, but he, he's still gone winless for the year. Um, and that's not going to cut it. Wins are now all that more, much more precious. Now we have arguably six dudes who can win a Grand Prix on paper in this current field. So... Yeah, I think it's it's starting to drift off where the top two are starting to take control of the championship. It's going to be between Cortese and Clazelle. Krimanaka has enough upside where I wouldn't rule him out just yet, but he needs to find some form. He's been off the podium in four out of the last five. Mahias has dropped off completely. But Karakasulo, yeah, a sixth place at Donington is not good enough. And a, and a DNF in Bruno and, uh, seems all the more costly. I, I would, I think we can chalk Karakasulo off the title contenders list now by the looks of it. It looks like we are down to four. There are five races to go uh, provisionally in the World Supersport Championship. Now, of course, the tie, the tie round, the Argentine round still has a little bit of doubt surrounding it with that circuit not yet completed. Um, now, there is talk that there is still a backup round to replace that. There would be a replacement circuit on standby. We think it's Jerez. Um, if that doesn't happen. So, as we stand, there are five races to go uh, in the World Supersport Championship, and as we stand at the moment, 19 points covers the top four. Let's give you a result, incidentally, though, uh, initially from uh, Bruno. It was Cluzel, the winner this time, from Cortese and De Rosa, uh, with Mahias only fourth and Krumanaka fifth. Thomas Gradinger, the teammate to Cluzel at the Nerds team, sixth. Um, that's his best result of the season and his best result as a Supersport rider. Uh, Out West, seventh on the first of the Kawasaki's from Carl Smith, who's now a Honda rider once again. Um, he's rejoined the CIA Landlord's Insurance Team. He was eighth ahead of the Finn, Emily Lati. Um, that was a career best for him as well, his first top ten. Uh, Morris Cresson, second of the Calio Bikes, teammate to Coltese, in tenth position. The rest of the points were handed out to Rob Hartog, uh, the Dutchman on the Hartog uh, Kawasaki. Harris Soma, the Estonian. The Japanese Hikari Okubo. Alfonso Coppola, last season, the Supersport 300 runner-up, getting his first points of the season in 14th position. Um, and the final point went to Alex Baldolini, who made a one-off return um, to the series last weekend um, in place um, of an injured rider. He made a standing appearance last weekend. So Baldolini back in the series, uh, and he took the final point uh, in 15th position. Uh, in fact, he took um, the uh, spot left uh, vacant by Carl Smith, who, of course, departed Lorini team. Uh, into Supersport 300. Um, and if you listen to last week's show, right at the very end of it, we talked about some of the changes to the regulations going into the Bruno round of the championship, mainly in, in terms of balancing the field because Kawasaki with the Ninja 400 have dominated to this point. Um, essentially, what we saw was a weight limit combined rider and bike installed where the Yamaha was the lightest bike rider and bike combined in the field. And colour be shocked, Dre. A Yamaha won by a mile at Bruno. Huh. How about that? Would you, would you ever have thought it? Um, yeah, if, if your daughter looking at the and going, mission accomplished, break out the good tequila. Mm. Um, yeah, that was uh, an alarming shift of perspective, given how the weekend played out on that one. Um, almost, like, coincidentally so, that Yamaha all of a sudden wins in such dominant fashion a week after you basically give him a 10 kilo advantage over the uh, the dominant bike in the field. Um, let's just say I'm not exactly keen about that, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's, that's, that's Dorna for you. And I believe in balancing the field for everybody. And this you get sometimes and to win a super sport race by four and a half seconds, by any count is uh, dominant. 
And you know, I'm, I'm taking nothing away from Pratamo, who won. Yeah, um, Galangendra Pratamo, incidentally, yeah, the rider who, who took the victory, his second career win um, in Super Sport Runa, because he did win the final race of last season, um, a, mm-hmm. a race win that kind of got overshadowed by the championship battle behind him um, yeah. between Martin Garcia and Alfonso Coppola. Um, but yeah, second career win for Hendra. He took the pole position as well um, pre the day previous to that, um, and he took it by a dominant, dominant gap as well. Um, did Hendra took the pole position um, on Saturday in Super Pole? This was a Super Pole session, much like the race that got interrupted by red flags um, because we had a red flag ending ending the race due to a crash in the midfield. Um, but yeah, Hendra, a, a brilliant, brilliant weekend for him, um, and the first win of the season for Yamaha. Uh, and as we say, it kind of coincides, it coincides neatly with the change of regulations that came in prior um, to the race weekend. Hendra had taken pole by three-tenths of a second uh, from Scott DeRue on the Saturday, um, with Anna Carrasco, the championship leader, in third. Um, and, and, a, and a strange race, in a sense, for Carrasco, Dre, the championship leader, who finished down in 11th. At one point, we were on course for an incredible scenario and another piece of history uh, in women's motorsport in that we very nearly had two women on the podium um as we saw anna carrasco battling with maria herrera for second place now both of them fell back uh, in the outright result at the end uh, carrasco fe- fell down to 11th herrera uh, to 9th um but we kind of have sympathy for both don't we in that because of the red flag scenario the race was declared after six laps and it was meant to be a 10 lap race both riders were kind of regrouping, taking their time at the back of this huge multiple rider group of, um, what, 13 riders all fighting for second. Then the red flag comes out and all those riders who were biding their time were kind of punished through no fault of their own. Yeah, that's the unfortunate and sometimes cruel nature of a red flag and the rule of going back to the last time the lap, um, unfortunately. Sometimes you get boned on that one. Ask Kimi Raikkonen from Brazil 2003. But um, it's it, that's the rule book, unfortunately. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They were in the leading group. They were competitive. At one point, they were like um, Carrasco and Herrera were running second and third. It would have been unbelievable if that's how it would have ended with you know two women on the podium. That would have been unbelievable. Another landmark for the series and for women in motorsport in general this year. But uh, sadly, not to be on this occasion. But yeah. That's the cruel nature of a red flag for you. Sometimes it's 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 going to throw up a result that you know is is going to be a bit all over the place because you're just stopping a race dead. Where where, where you know obviously strategies and you know the way the, the race will play out is obviously going to be different if, um, if if you run the full ten laps. So yeah, unfortunate for Carrasco, but no real harm done in the championship standings for in her case, thankfully. No, well as we'll uh, tell you in a moment, she didn't lose a lot of ground. I mean. For, at the end of laps three and four, she was in second place um, in the overall race with Herrera um, on the uh, on the number 69 BCD Yamaha for the MST, the Halkiri team that won the championship last season with Garcia. Um, she was in third place at the end of both laps three and four. Then they fell down. Carrasco fell to third at the end of lap five. Herrera was down in uh, fifth. And then it was on lap six that they dropped sharply down the field as the... As the you know, slipstreaming began as they all jockeyed around and, you know, they were still very much in that group, but obviously that was the last lap of the race, as it turned out, because of the crash further back, um, which saw them, you know, essentially robbed of a load of points in the end. It was Max Kapler and Ali Rusby-Putro who crashed out. They were in that group, as it goes. They were in that group fighting for second place. Um, They were just right at the tail of it, just outside the top 10. In fact, just behind Carrasco. Um, when they had their crash, which brought out the red flags. There was also some rain in the air as well 
Um, the forced race directions call halt to it because, of course, there's no flag to flag in Super Sport 300. Um, so they had to call a halt to it. And, of course, it was just after the two-thirds race distance. If this had happened a lap earlier, we would have had a three-lap restart. Um, and what would have been a crazy Super Sport 300 race with just a few laps to determine a winner. In the end, then, it was Hendra Patama taking his second career win and first of the year um, for him and the Yamaha team and the Yamaha R3. Uh, Valid Khan, um, the Dutchman, uh, in second place for the new tech team. Um, and Borja Sanchez third. So two Kawasaki Ninja 400s did still get on the podium, even though they were a very distant second and third. Um, Cud Muffles and Glenn Van Stralen for the KTM uh, Fortran Junior team, fourth and fifth. Um, with Nikita Kalinin, the rider who we told you last week was returning from his brave but badly broken leg at Imola, he returned with a top six in sixth. Scott DeRue seventh, really not enough in his um, in his camp given the uh, championship uh, scenarios. Danny Valle, 8th. Maria Herrera ending up classified ninth ahead of Luca Grunwald. Again, not enough for him, given that he was second in the championship, 10th. Ahead of Carrasco in 11th. Dorian Larrero, Carrasco's teammate, right behind in 12th, just as he was in Donington. Although, of course, rather than being a 1-2, it was an 11-12 for the team. Uh, with Janik in 13th, De La Vega 14th, and the wildcard of Adoya taking the final point. This is what it's done to the championship. Carrasco with just three races to go. Uh, in Super Sport 300 because they don't go to Donington, uh, sorry, they don't go to Laguna, don't go to Argentina, and don't go to La Salle. Uh, they only go to the European rounds. So just Mizano, Portimao, and Magni Corps to go. Uh, and Carrasco is 20 points clear of Sanchez, who's now up to second as a result of his three consecutive podiums. Uh, Grunwald drops to third, although he's only a point behind Sanchez. Uh, Daru is two points further back in fourth. Uh, he's on 55, so it's uh, 23 points covering the top four at the moment uh, in the championship. Muffles is fifth on 49. Van Stralen sixth on 47. Larrero drops to seventh on 46. Hendra Patama is up to eighth on 43, uh, ahead of Khan on 42. Uh, that was his first podium, incidentally, of the season and of his career, with Kalinin completing the top 10 on 33 points. Manufacturers Championship Kawasaki are 19 points clear of KTM uh, with Yamaha uh, closing in a little bit in third. They're on 58 points. That's 48 off the lead overall. Next round of the World Supersport 300 Championship, much like the Supersport Championship, is at Mizano. Um, and that comes on the 7th and 8th of July. Uh, one other class to bring you, uh, and that was the uh, Superstock 1000 class. Now, because of their positioning in the race weekend format, uh, they were last on on Sunday. They had to race in monsoonical rain conditions. Oh, um, God, yeah. So, uh, unfortunately for them, they got the worst of conditions. Not only that bothered the Chilean Max Sheeb, um, who took his first win of the season and his second career victory um, ahead of Alessandro Del Bianco. Um, for the uh, Altea BMW team. Uh, that was his first podium of the season and first for the team. Uh, with Florian Marino in third overall. Championship leader Marcus Reiterberger uh, could only manage fourth. Um, that's the second time this season in rather mixed conditions that Reiterberger has been found wanting a little bit. Um, he's pretty much dominated every dry race we've had so far this season, but the wet races haven't really favoured him uh, in the end. Uh, Mantovani taking fifth ahead of Luca Vitali and Federico Sandi in seventh. You'll notice a lot of Italian sounding names in this class. It is predominantly an Italian championship, the Europe European Super Stock 1000 class. Um, uh, so in the end, it was uh, Vitali sixth, Sandi seventh, Roberto Tamburini eighth, uh, Ricardo Russo, ninth, uh, and Emmanuel Peschedu in 10th position. That is seven Italians in the top 10. Uh, championship standings as a result of that. Reiterberger still leads it, um, but despite having taken dominant victories in three of the five races we've had so far, 
Um, his lead is rather precarious. Um, he's only nine points clear of Sheem now on the Aprilia in second. Uh, with Roberto Tamburini dropping a spot to third. He's 15 off the lead. Uh, Federico Sandi is a very dom uh, distant fourth. He's some 23 points behind Tamburini uh, in fourth position. So it is looking like it's a three-horse race at best uh, in the Superstock 1000 European Championship. Much like the Super Sport 300, they have just three rounds to go. move on to the news um and we're kind of sticking with world superbikes initially because um we told you about this a couple of times already on this show um but jonathan ray is staying at kawasaki and indeed world superbikes for two more years um that has been the big news uh, in motorcycle racing this week um and we've already talked Dre, about what he may go on to achieve uh, in the next uh, two and a half years as it is at kawasaki but um in terms of jonathan ray and his options that he had um I mean, for me, I think we're both agreed he could quite easily jump onto a Suzuki, uh, a Repsol Honda in most GP and be very, very competitive on it, given testing and everything that comes with being a regular most GP rider. Um, but given the options he had left open to him, i.e. Aprilia or a, a satellite Ducati in, in MotoGP, can we really blame him for staying in Kawasaki? Basically, his own niche that he's carved out for him. Um no one can really blame Jonathan Ray for wanting to stick around and continue to dominate. What's better than dominance? More dominance. Um, yeah, I can't... I, so ever. I mean, I was hoping that it was going to be Honda that was going to make him an offer in terms of factory seats and whatnot, but it was obvious they had a chance to sign Jorge Lorenzo. So you sign Jorge Lorenzo. Um, so yeah, I mean, given the options that were left... Um, it's a no-brainer. No one should be leaving while Superbikes to go to a, a bottom bottom of the field MotoGP team like Aprilia is at the moment. And um, that's the last team I'd want to be joining for factories at the, at the minute. So, yeah, given, given what the options left available to him, it was a no-brainer. Stick with the team that's that's got you all this greatness. Um, and there's no harm in being there for another two seasons. There's no reason to believe why Jonathan won't go on to continue to dominate the series. So... Yeah, you know, wait around for at least another year, see what opens up, and you know, sometimes it, it, it's 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 better to wait. We've got guys like Rabat um, and Zarco in the past, so um, yeah, sometimes it you know it pays to wait rather than just taking what's what's put in front of you. So yeah, we'll see what happens in 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 the future if another spot becomes available that's a big one like that for Jonathan. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think they made the right decision there. Yeah, Jonathan Ray staying at the Kawasaki Racing Team until at least the end of 2020. Um, now into the MotoGP paddock, um, and we're going to be sticking here for, for quite a while for, for this show before we cover BSB right at the very end um, of this uh, episode, episode 64 of Bike Live. Um, and Moto2 first, because um, there's been a bit of silly season movement again in MotoGP this week, but it's kind of news that we already kind of thought was going to happen. This one uh, kind of emerged late last week as we were recording last week's show um, and when you look at the press release from KTM it's clear this deal was signed uh, at Mugello you can see the Tuscan Hills behind uh, both rider and team boss Never. as they're signing, <laughs> they're signing their contract um, 
But Jorge Martin has been signed by Red Bull KTM IO in Moto2 next season um, to presumably partner Brad Binder. Miguel Oliveira, as we already know, is moving up to MotoGP uh, with the Tech3 KTM team. Uh, Martin, who may well move up as Moto3 champion, um, it looks like him and Marco Pazecchi are going to be fighting that out for the rest of the season. Gotta say, Dre, given how strong this team is and how strong the rider we know is, that's a great hire. It is indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Jorge Martin is the class of the Moto3 field right now, and um, there's no doubt about it. He's in in the class in the, in that junior category at the moment. Um, blistering pace, you know, vast in, in improving racecraft. Um, yeah, just just overall, just a, an excellent talent. One that's been in mighty impressive. I argue for the last season and a half, he was a little bit in mere shadow last year in Moto3 because obviously just you know winning 10 races is incredible there's no doubt about it but the other I think key takeaway from that season really as well as maybe Canet's improvement as a breakout star was Martin um you know not only the amount of poles he was converting but also just generally getting better in terms of race results too um and this year he's taking it to the next level now with regular victories he's been in contention pretty much every round this entire season he's been he's been unlucky not to have a bigger championship advantage, really, he should be leading the championship given how unlucky he's been with due to incidents like at Jerez, um, you know, and and at Le Mans where he's been collected on two separate occasions. But he's the class field in Moto Three, um, and you know, KTM is already a, a, a top tier team in Moto Two of the KTM chassis. They're they're the number one producers of that chassis. That's the team that's going to be they're going to be trying to win with. Um, in that scenario, it just, it's, it's looking like a straight swap for uh, Miguel Oliveira, who, again, title contender right now in Moto2. And, you know, he's got a good yardstick improvement with Binder, who's now got a good couple of years of experience in Moto2 behind him as well. So we'll see quickly how well Martin's able to able to come along on that one. So, uh, yeah, definitely um, a great hire for the KTM team. You've you got the best guy in Moto3 this year. There's no argument there. You, you've got a, you got a tremendous pick. So hopefully they'll go, they'll go on with that. The big news in MotoGP this week is Joan Villa signing for Suzuki. Um, now, that news wasn't really a great surprise. We knew that for a few months. Um, that Mia was going to be joining Alex Rins at Suzuki team. And it has to be said, Dre, that's a brilliant hire. It's a stunning hire. That was probably the number one Moto2 or junior rider in general that could have gone into MotoGP this season. We've seen him develop in Moto2 and improve at an alarming rate of knots, basically going from from you know midfielder when he was and he was still ill and injured at the start of the season to now back-to-back podiums in the last two races. And yeah, if anything, it's proven he's just a very fast learner, which is an ideal fit for someone like going to go to Suzuki. We've seen Alex Rins early success. Um, he's a guy capable of scoring podiums now. Um, he's already had a career podium in his second season with the team. He's now regularly in the top five when he keeps it upright. Um so yeah, the way it's going right now, that's a that's a fantastic hire. And what a team Suzuki have got! That could be their team for the next decade. To have Alex Rins and Joe and Joanne Mir like that side by side, um, a combined age of forty two in a sport where Valentino Rossi is thirty eight. Um, that's alarming uh, for multiple reasons. I now feel old as hell. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's an incredible team, um, no doubt about it. That's an incredibly impressive unit. Um, you know, Rins a, 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 is having a fantastic time in GP so far, and I have no reason to believe that Mir won't won't come on very quickly. 
and learn very quickly from being in a top flight. He's got a good bike to learn from as well with a team of good assets and good resources. So, yeah, I think that's a brilliant move for all parties. Hmm. So Mir alongside uh, Rins at Suzuki next year. Uh, and it appeared as if a big victim of that and perhaps a victim to MotoGP or a loss to MotoGP altogether. It was going to be Danny Pedrosa. Um, now, yesterday, um, Danny Pedrosa had his pre-race debrief, which was streamed live by MotoGP.com. Um, and I have to say, Dre, I didn't really quite catch it. Um, so I'm assuming Danny Pedrosa announced his retirement, right? Uh, um, about that. Yeah. Um, sadly, Danny Pedrosa went full Antoine Griezmann in the Um, thanks for wasting everyone's time, Danny. Much appreciated. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, long story short, like Danny, Danny Pedrosa announced there's nothing to really announce. Um, he has got potential plans in the in the pipeline, um, but there's nothing concrete. So really, there's nothing to announce at the moment. Um, it's the, 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 there's a lot of uh, speculation amongst the media and in the press that uh, he could be spearheading the the, the Petronas backed uh, Yamaha. Yeah, that, that could team. only be what the plan is, surely, because surely Danny Pajosa is not going to stick yeah, around. Yeah, there's, to there's nothing else. There's, yeah, there's, there's nothing else. There's no satellite team is going to be able to afford something. Of Petrosa's caliber. Um, so the way I see it at the moment, um, the only real solution here is, is just taking the time out to see if this Petronas lead back to Yamaha team gets off the ground. And there's a lot of high-ranking names that are in. It's like Lin Jarvis, obviously spearheading the factory Yamaha team, and Carmelo Esbrelta, who's one of the highest up, highest-ranking dudes at Dorna at the moment. So on paper, um, at the moment, there's a lot of really big names involved. Which, which kind of says to me that there's a much greater chance that it does happen rather than it doesn't happen. Um, but it's still obviously very early days. They've still got to get their official spots on the grid. There could be complications with that, especially with Mark VDS, who no longer own the rights to their grid spots because Michael Bartolome owns those and he's no longer a part of the team. Awkward. Um, so there's a lot of ifs and buts to sort out in that Danny Pedrosa situation. But uh Sadly, for the second time in two days, we got cockteased on the internet when guys are making big deals about announcements, and it turns out there's nothing to announce. How about that? <laughs> yeah, well, nothing's changing in the, in the form of Anton Griezmann. Um, but yeah, mm. in terms of victims and losses to the most GP panic, there are actually a couple more, and they're both British. Um, Bradley Smith being one, uh, we'll talk about him in a second. Um, Scott Redding's the other. Now, um, before we talk about what Scott Redding's options are, Ray, um, Scott Redding got the full-on Spanish FA treatment, didn't he? In that he didn't find out he was cut by Aprilia until the news was essentially very breaking um, to the rest of the world. Um, he found out on social media that Andrea Doni was taking his place uh, Aprilia next season. Now, as Keith Hewen uh, pointed out today uh, during commentary of the uh, free practice at Catalonia, he probably could have read between the lines anyway um, that yeah. he was out. Uh, but even so... Um, from Scott Redding's point of view, I think that's one area where we can have a little bit of sympathy because surely a bit of common courtesy wouldn't have gone amiss there. And let's be fair, that's not the first time that Aprilia have been rather, um, how should we say, unkind and unfair in their treatment of a British rider. Unprofessional, yeah. Correct. I mean, yeah. Like they, they, we all know their treatment of Sam Lowe's was horrible. Um, right from the get-go, you mean you give the guy a three-year deal and you end up cutting him after a handful of GP races. Um, that was shitty, and this was shitty as well. I mean, like you can't even easy to tell Scott Redding he's, he's unemployed next year. Instead, you, you just announce the only and just don't expect your, your your current rider to notice that. I think. I mean, that's that's crummy. 
and you know it by any accounts it's unprofessional i'm disappointed that a pretty would do such a thing um yeah i've got to human pointed out yes if you're taking that you're taking that side of it away and you're just focusing on the move itself yeah it's, it's a no-brainer scott redding's not been very good this season um alicia spagaro has been spitting that team and redding's been down the back of the field pretty much all season long um just nothing nothing doing for him at the moment in gp and i think that is the last of his chances really to 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 perform at, at, at the highest level in Grand Prix motorcycle racing. I mean, this is fifth season at the top, and he's he's never really reached the promise he showed in his rookie season when he was riding a production Honda, amazingly, of all things. Um, that was arguably his strongest-looking season, and he's never really improved from that spot. It's very weird how it's all turned out for him. Um, it's a shame, because I think he's a talented rider. There's no doubt about that. He should have probably won that Moto2 title. He was in contention for until Philip Island happened. Um, but he's just never really kicked on in the top flight. And I think a change of scene will probably the, will probably be the best thing for Scott going forward for next year and whatnot. He's like, I, on a personal level, I've had a bit of beef with him on the, on Twitter in the past, but he's like, I know he's a good guy deep down. And I, and I know he's, he, 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 what he is, he's, he's, he's passionate. And I will never fault a guy for being passionate about his job and wanting the best for himself. And, um, you know he means well, and I, I wish him the best because I I I I don't think it's I don't think he ever really got a clean a clean chance in MotoGP. He was always kind of back against the wall. Production Hondas to a, a satellite Honda that was never a good bike in the first place, and you know his Aprilia big, his big wasn't chance that was that half season up against Petrucci where the winner got the the factory Ducati, wasn't it? That was the moment. Yeah, um, where Scott Redding's career turned. Um, unfortunately, he didn't take that opportunity. He's been on the show as Scott Redding, um, famously back in our downforce days when uh, Rebecca James interviewed him at Motorcycle Live. God, that was a day mm-hmm. and a half. Um, but, oh, um, God, yeah. But, but yeah, he actually took to Instagram. Now, when doesn't he? I hear you say. Um, yeah. But he took to Instagram this week to basically ask his followers what he should do next year. Uh, the options he gave were full time dad, MotoGP, sure, why not? which probably isn't really up to him. Um, I didn't own- know he had a kid. Yeah, <laughs> neither did I. Uh, own a farm. Um, you know, he does a sure. lot of farming. Bike mechanic, yeah. Moto2, which is perhaps the most realistic yet. Um, painter, sure. WSBK. Um, and the last option was Italian MX Championship 125 rider. Um, now, if you're wondering why that option's there, it's because his girlfriend, his, his, his current girlfriend, I know it changes regularly, um, is Chiara <laughs> Fontanese, the uh, the women's motocross world champion, um, who, who is who is Italian. Um, she does she is a, she's an Italian motocross women's world champion, so that's why that option has been included in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lewis thought to be real it in. <laughs> yeah, but but if you're if you're Scott Redding, Dre. Um, which again is a bit of a reach. Um, is it's the yeah. Um, World Superbikes. I think that's a not a, not a bad option at all for Scott. Well, yeah, it's a thousand cc. It's, it's that sort of level of speed and, and performance. I don't think there's that many there. Um, and given that I think there could be movement in the top flight of World Superbikes very soon, especially in the upper echelon. I mean, I. I I have doubts Melandri is going to be there next year. I have doubts Tom Sykes is going to be at Kawasaki next year. And I have doubts Michael Vandermark will be at Yamaha next season. I think someone bigger might snap him up somewhere. So there could be opportunities in World Superbikes for him to fit in there somewhere um, for, for bigger seats going forward. So for me at the moment, yeah, I think Worlds is probably the, the move that makes the most sense from his career points. I mean, he does have unfinished business in Moto. I still remember that 2013 season where he was leading the championship and then had an awful crash on an unsafe 
Philip Island. Um, yeah, it was a brilliant rivalry had, with Paul Espargaro. Yeah, it was a brilliant rivalry with Paul. He, he, he when was in was in prime position to take his first world title, and it was yanked out from underneath him at the last. Um, but so, yeah, he's got unfinished business in Moto too, so I, I wouldn't rule that out. But um, I think Worlds is for me the best fit for him going forward. Um, and I think there's going to be movement there in the top flight, so that could be interesting. So if you want my advice, Scott, World seems to be a good calling card for you. Mm. I mean, so, Moto2, hey, I mean, of course, his, his former team in Moto2, Mark yes, have got a spot open next year because they're losing Joanne Mir. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, who knows? They they tend to go for younger riders um, in their team, as many Moto2 do, it has to be said, because it's, it's a class that's it's a progression class on the way to GP. Um, mm-hmm. So so we'll see what happens. And um, if history is any indicator, riders dropping from MotoGP down to Moto2 do not have a great success rate, do they? Um, so perhaps a, a change will be as good as a rest for Scott Reddy. Um, what may work against Scott getting a World Superbike ride is that I don't imagine he's going to get much help from Dorna to secure a ride because I think Dorna are the attitude of there are quite enough Brits who are competitive in World Superbike as it is. Um, so um, they're, they're probably going to try and uh, get as many different nationalities onto that grid as possible. So they're not perhaps going to work as hard to get Scott Redding a ride as they would some others um, in the world. Um, that's also a problem, of course, facing Bradley Smith, who's out of KTM uh, at the end of this year and out of Mudsa GP unless he lands a, a satellite Ducati ride somewhere. And it doesn't look as if he wants one. Um, he wants a factory ride. Um, and it sounds like a real shame, Dre, that Bradley Smith's likely career path now looks like being retirement yeah that, which is really weird to say about a former top independent rider in moto gp at just 28 years old it's uh gonna be yeah, a grand prix winner yeah bradley smith and yeah it's 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 a, it's it's been a strange one for bradley i mean the broken leg is what i think ultimately did him in towards the end of last season um he talked about it how it was only really 100% by the time he got to Argentina this year. So as much as we often call bike riders warriors and sometimes know that there is niggling downsides to some of these bigger injuries. And this was one of them for Bradley Smith. He's never really been the same guy since then until now. And even then, he's still kind of playing second fiddle in that team to Paul Spagaro, you know, his, his old teammate and rival over the years. Um it's a shame to say the least, because Bradley is an excellent rider. He's 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 a guy that has persevered through a lot of pressure, a lot of quality riders around him, a lot of guys calling for his head on on numerous occasions. And yet, despite that, he's often persevered. He's come through, and one of the most likable riders I think I've ever seen in in GP as well. He's a he's a he's a very very well mannered, very intelligent, charming young man as well who is. I had the stones to stick up to the stick up to the you know, for the field and for the safety commission, um, you know, calling out the bullshit of Jorge Lorenzo and Valentino Rossi at, at Catalonia itself just two years ago when Luis Salon passed, and there was talk about you know, the, the, you know trying to make the track safer, and you know Lorenzo and Rossi were kicking up a stink about it, and Bradley was one was 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 the guy who spoke up on national television in front of BT Sport and the world to say no, I think that's out of order. Um, he's 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 a very very likable guy, you know, very very wise head on his shoulders you know, always honest always up front um always candid gives the media a lot of time um and he's an incredibly likable guy he's a class act he always has been i've never had a bad word to say about bradley and you know i hope this isn't the end for him because he's an excellent bike rider um but if he's content with retiring and moving on to the next chapter of his life then more power to him i say so 
you know, I hope it's not the end. The selfish bike fan in me thinks he is more than capable of a, of a GP seat or, or, or a world superbike seat for that matter. I think he's more than good enough for that. I just think, you know, the timing and the circumstances have obviously changed and you know, the field is, is an ever-moving thing and there's more young talent coming through than ever, which is always a problem for, for guys like Bradley who is, you know, of a certain age and, you know, is you know, always looking for the next big thing. That's how, that's how team bosses think. Um, if it is the end, then, you know, I, I mean, it's a shame, but if, if Bradley's content, then I can't follow for that. But, uh it's been a hell of a run for Bradley, and I hope I just hope the end. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I again, he's another rider who we've had on this show, and it was one of my uh, career highlights doing this show to, to interview Bradley Smith on the show mm-hmm. shortly after he'd won the Suzuki Eight Hour um, with Yamaha. And as Dre mentioned, he um, picked up the injury, which has really changed his career, unfortunately for for the worse, um, in an endurance race at Oshersleben a couple of years ago, and that may be a, a viable career path for him if he wants it, because he, he's, he's clearly a very analytical rider, he's a very uh, intelligent, deep-thinking rider, um, and would be perfect for endurance racing, as he's proven by winning the 8-hour. Um, so that would be a great p- uh, position for him to perhaps pick up. Um, but as I mentioned before we started, as Dre has um, picked up on there, I think he'd, he'd have a great role on the safety commission in MotoGP, a, a Caparossi-style role, the role that Caparossi Absolutely. has in MotoGP. Um, and I think it's important. Uh, we say this a lot in football when um, players retire. Um, we always say that it would be important for someone with such intelligence and such great knowledge on that sport to be lost to the sport. Um, and mm-hmm. I hope that's not the case with Bradley. I hope the sport still continues to keep him involved in some fashion for the good of the sport because he's, he's as we say, he's such a deep thinker. He's such an intelligent guy that he, he's got so much knowledge to, to pass on in whatever capacity it is. Um, and just an all-around great guy, as Dre said. So, um, so let's let's wait and see what Bradley Smith's next career move is. Uh, we will wish him the very, very best uh, in whatever that is. MotoGP, of course, goes on to Catalonia this weekend. Um, the third consecutive year we've actually had a different layout in Catalonia because, um, of course, <laughs> this year they are not using the chicane at the end of the lap. They're using the old Turn 12 as it was again. Of course, it's now Turn 13 because they're stu- still using the Formula 1 circuit of Turn 10 and 11, the hairpin and the kink that follows it. Um, so that is what we're dealing with in Catalonia this weekend. And based on practice today, Dre, this is appearing at the yeah, this early stage a little bit of a difficult one to call. Valentino Rossi quickest by nearly four tenths of a second in the morning, which took a few of us by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um dropped away in the afternoon as Jorge Lorenzo dominated the afternoon session. Mark Marquez crashed out of that session, situation normal. Um, uh, but Ducati looking particularly strong, certainly in the case of Jorge. Yeah, I mean, he's always like Catalan. He's always, to say the least, even if you know, it's not the Yamaha he's traditionally on, he's always gone well. So I'm not entirely surprised that they're they're in they're in a play. Um, the new resurfacing of the track and the new layout is is always it's always going to be a learning experience, especially obviously in sectors three and four for the guys learning. They, they've got their, they've kept the Formula One turn ten the tighter first gear left hander now rather than the old Catalina where you, where you ride over the logo essentially um, as you as you go around the slightly faster corner back there. But obviously they've they've gone back to the old turn twelve, which is now turn thirteen. Don't ask. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's basically a brand new track for what it's worth. I mean, on paper with it having you know more grip, given it had gone and the F one cars have made it all bumpy because of you know, their cars riding all over it. Yamaha in theory should be stronger. 
this weekend, which it looks like they are. Valentina Rossi looks very strong so far this weekend. Maverick, I'm sure, will show more upside probably in qualifying if yeah, the bike is working well. Yeah, last 10 laps to the race. Yeah, you know, you know the, the <laughs> usual for Maverick. Um, Marquez is already, you know, he's shrugged off the two crashes he had yesterday, you know, saying that they'll, they'll, they'll improve bit by bit tomorrow. And we all know Marquez. his merchandise, I think. Just, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> it is good, too, that. It is very good. I, 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 I like special merchandise. Sue me. <laughs> Anyone that knows me by now on these networks knows I'm a sucker for shit like that, okay? <laughs> My bank balance disagrees, but here we are. Um, but, yes, uh, Marquez is probably going to improve um, by the time we get to Saturday. He always seems to find the way. He bounces back better than anyone I've ever seen in this sport. And yeah, as mentioned, like Lorenzo, ever since the fuel tank adjustment, has looked very fast indeed. And, he's, he's, and to be fair, he's always been fast in practice and qualifying sessions on Ducati. It's the race where the problems have come up. Um, so, especially the second half of races, um, given his, the problems he has with his arms and the strength of the bike. So, yeah, it's it's looking very wide open at the moment. I could easily see six or seven dudes being in contention for qualifying tomorrow as we're recording this. Um, so who knows is the easy answer to give you on that one. But yeah, it's it's looking like Ducati is stronger than expected. Yamaha are about where I thought they would be. Honda still with some work to do. Marquez in 12th after Friday practice is not what you normally read on a timing sheet at all. So... Um, there's some work to do for some guys in the field just yet, and that's what makes it all the more intriguing. Mm, yeah, it's going to be an interesting weekend. Whatever happens, MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3, all in action. We'll review it all uh, next week on episode 65, um, as well as a review of the returning BSB. They're back at Snetterton this weekend on the 300 circuit. Um, no shaky burn, of course. Um, as you know, if you've been following the show at all or following the Motorcycle Racing News, Shaky Burn had a very bad accident in testing at the same circuit uh, around a month ago he's still um you know in and out of hospital he's still got that that contraption on his head to uh, obviously restrict movement of the neck and enable him to um to recover and for everything to heal um he's been replaced for this weekend and presumably for the foreseeable future presuming there are no world superbike clashes because this rider is a world supersport uh, regular by andrew irwin and um, so we have the irwin brothers as teammates at bys at ducati um, this weekend, it's <laughs> Nettleton, Glenn, and Andrew um, as teammates. Um, as far as the season as a whole, Dre, um, it's almost a bit of a reset now with the championship returning after so long. And what we thought was going to be a three-way title fight with three others looking to force their way into the showdown. It now, with Shaky Byrne looking like he's going to be out for the foreseeable future, if not the season, it's now more a case of two plus four, which really opens it up. Yeah, it's it's looking that way now indeed. I mean, Shaky has not got enough points at this point in the season to, to to survive by the time we get to the showdown. He will drop out of that zone, and I don't think he's racing again this season. So I'm, I'm chalking Shaky off for this year's championship, and that's a real shame. But of course, you know, that loss will be somebody else's gain. And yeah, it's looking like Haslam, who was fastest in practice this morning, He's got a chance to take his first net to victory this weekend as well and cement one of his places in there. I think Bradley Ray will get in there. I think he's got more upside than anyone in the class at the moment. Um, and it, yeah, it's looking like it's going to be those two plus another four, which you know opens opens the doors up to a lot of riders in the mix like Christian Niden and Dan Linfoot, who are also both coming back um, this weekend as well. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunities for a lot of riders who, you know, might have potentially missed out on a place because of Shaky's injury. That's now probably going to be off the table now. So 
yeah, I would I would keep an eye on guys like Dixon, who's in sick right now, and Brooks, Bucken, um, Laverty, Iden, and Linford, who have had, you know, sketchy starts to the season, but now have a golden chance to get back into play. Yeah, as it stands at the moment, if we if we scrub Shaky Burn from the title picture completely, here's how essentially how it looks. Haslam leads it going in on 115 from Bradley Ray on 101 on brand. Um, Jason O'Halloran hey. is essentially third on 63 uh, from Irwin, the essential de facto team leader now at BYU's Chikati, fourth on 59, Jake Dixon fifth on 55, and Josh Brooks would go up to sixth on 43, two points ahead of Danny Bucken, four clear of Michael Laverty, um, and ten clear, if we're talking about sixth backwards, of Christian Iden, who's back from injury this weekend. So, the departure of Shaky gives him a bit of a, an extra chance that he might not have had to get into the showdown, um, mm-hmm. which is, is good for the sport for Eden to be back, but also, Dre, good for the championship to see Dan Linfoot back after that dreadful injury that ruled him out of the last two rounds, given how well he'd started the season. Indeed, great to have him back so soon. Great to have him on the mend. That same Jason Halloran, who obviously had that the ankle break at Imola, filling in for the Honda team as well. So, yeah, great, great to see them both back so soon. And yeah, I think we, we, again, that's that's often the beauty of the regular season format, where you can afford to miss a couple of weekends and still get back into play if your form is good enough. Same for Ridden as well. All of them have had you know injury riddled starts to the season, but have now got a golden chance. Now that there's probably one extra spot that's been opened up for them to get back into the showdown. So keep an eye on all those guys as well. Um, um, so yeah, like I said, Shaky's loss, you know, is obviously it's a huge blow to the credibility of the paddock. Obviously with with Shaky being the class rider that he is, it's a shame he's not going to be here for the rest of the season, most likely. But it does also um, exaggerate to a degree as well just how good the field is. And, you know, the dogfight is going to be now there to probably get, um, you know, the four, the most likely the four shutdown spaces to the left, given that it's looking like Haslam and Ray will certainly take two of them. Mm, that does look as if that's how it's going. Whatever happens, we'll review it all next week here on episode 65. Uh, of Bike Live review of the MotoGP in Catalonia and indeed BSB uh, at Snetterton. Between now and then, um, you can get in touch with us on all the usual platforms Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101, uh, Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, our YouTube channel, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, our website is Motorsport101.com. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, earn yourself early access to both of our weekly podcasts, um, it's patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. As we speak to you now, uh, episode 144 is online. Or is it 145, Dre? I'm confused. <sighs> you had to do it, didn't yep. you? <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, you, you way, had to shout do it. out to Noah Richardson on Twitter who pointed this out. Um, that's as you know her. Um, who. If you're listening to the show, Noah, go back to the World Superbike um, segment about half an hour ago when I asked Dre a question about Chaz Davis's weekend and listen to him lose his train of thought. As I was listening to that, I was thinking, thinking I know why that is. <laughs> and I so wanted to call you on it, but I thought, no, I'm going to leave it. I hate you. You know that, right? I, I, I hate you. I'm going to pop your little head off your shoulders, son of me. Um, yes, yes. Shut up! <laughs> yes, yes, I uploaded the wrong episode by accident. <laughs> I'm an idiot. You have every right to call me an idiot. I fucked up, okay? I Like, that was a big one on my part. I accidentally uploaded episode 145. So if you got on that earlier, congratulations. What is the um, 
Um, you, you, you managed to beat the queue by about 16 hours. Well played. Um, yes, um, the correct episode 144 is now up. Um, you talking obviously the, 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 us, the, the regulars talking about the Canadian Grand Prix, Sebastian Vettel's 50th victory, as well as the IndyCar race in Texas, Scott Dixon's uh, big championship stealing victory out of Pagano and Alex Rossi. Episode 145 will be also be up by the time this goes up, probably, unless I upload 144 twice. Hopefully, <laughs> I avoid that tomorrow morning. Um, I, have to say, I, I have to say, in your defense, like I, I for, for those that don't know the intricacies of how this works, I edit the shows and send them to Dre, send the files that he uploads them. Um, and when I'm sending the file, the finished podcast to Dre, I always worry I'm going to do that. I, I always <laughs> worry that one week I'm going to send him the wrong file. Um, and that we're gonna Congratulations, I, I beat you punch yeah, on this one so, uh, um, so yeah uh, you have my sympathy on that respect but doesn't make it any less funny um but uh yeah <laughs> but before before we speak to you next on bike live by that point episode 146 um uh, will have gone live um i'm expecting a snooker theme for episode 147 the following week um of course but um but yeah episode 146 with the fallout from Le Mans, and surely we're going to be speaking about toyota's long-awaited win surely probably Maybe. Um, well, they're on pole position, you know. If 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 that could thought about that, they'll they'll get mad that the two-time world champion. So they don't win this one. They might as well pack up and go home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not going to get a better chance than this one. I mean, it's it's they're the only factory out there. They're significantly quicker than everybody else. But this is Le Mans, so you yeah. never quite know what's going to happen. And if you're Toyota, you really don't know what's going to happen. We've been there, um, to say the least. So um, nothing is set in stone, and that's and that's what makes Lamont so great. So all the fallout from that will be on episode one forty six next week. Yeah, we're uh, heading into a very very busy period now here on Motorsport One Hundred and One mm-hmm. Live with uh, regular races across all the different championships we cover. Of course, Formula One back next week at the uh, uh, Paul Ricard circuit, where it'll be going into its first of three consecutive race weekends. Um, with uh, Silverstone and Austria following on. So, uh, yeah, it's a busy, busy time of the season um, on both two wheels and four. So you'll be able to listen to uh, our views on all of it across our two weekly shows. Uh, Bike Live will return um, for episode 65 next week where we will cover uh, the action in Catalonia and at Snetterton. This episode, though, episode 64, saw us cover the Bruno round of the World Superbike Championship where Alex Lowe's took his first ever victory, but the weekend ended up shrouded in green mist. We will see you again next week.